This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My folks live in Kansas, which is Tornado Alley, and it also means that from late spring through the summer, uh, tornado drills are a regular part of life, and the actual sirens that tell you a tornado is somewhere in the vicinity are sounding off at, at least once a month, maybe even more. So for them, it's just a fact of life, and there's an alertness and awareness that, hey, we live in Tornado Alley. It may be a little bit like those folks who live in countries that border on hostile neighbors, like South Korea or Japan that live in close proximity to Japan, or sorry, to North Korea, where the, the threat is, is right there. What about us here in DuPage County? Well, we are not in Tornado Alley. And our geopolitical situation is not that of South Korea. Wisconsin is a hostile country, but not as bad as North Korea. But this affords us a measure of indifference, laxity when it comes to the threat of tornadoes or the invasion of foreign armies. The closest we get is first Tuesday of the month at 10 o'clock in the morning, we hear the practice siren going around, right? And that's, that's the closest to a real threat of tornado we'll probably have in our lifetime. But if ever there is a real one, and I, and I did check, DuPage County has had 20-some tornadoes in the last 50-plus years, all of them really small. If there is a real one, we do have the risk of being caught unawares, careless, heedless, especially if it happens to be 10 o'clock on the first Tuesday of the month when the tornado decides to show up, and we would just say, ah, it's just the drill. It's just the drill, not the real thing. No danger, no need for alertness. And I wonder sometimes if we have that same attitude with the spiritual climate or in regards to the spiritual battle that we are in. Indifference and laxity can too easily creep in. And maybe you know what it's like to begin to wonder, if I pull back a little bit from the spiritual battle, if I lessen up, if I, if I let up a little bit, if I maybe decide I'm going to coast for a while. Will it make a difference? Will it make a difference in my life or those around me? Will anyone else notice? Will, will it matter? Will anyone care? Does it matter if I stay engaged in the fight, stay alert? Sometimes we hear these scriptures, like Psalm 110, about judgment and battle and the coming of the end of the world and of all things. And we listen to it like we hear the siren on Tuesday morning, the first Tuesday of the month, and we think, it's not real. That's just a drill. And in one way, we believe these scriptures, or we do believe that Jesus will come back, but in another very real way, we don't. We don't live as if that's true. And instead, we hear these scriptures, these words, and our feeling is more like, it's just a drill. This probably won't actually happen. And anyway, what does it have to do with my life? Psalm 110 is here, and Scripture's like it, to rouse us to a wakefulness, an alertness, to be ready. They're saying to us, these Scriptures are saying, this is not a drill. And if you follow Jesus as your Messiah, that means you follow Him into battle now and at the end of all things. The good news and what this psalm is primarily about is that God's anointed one, His Messiah, will be victorious. 
He's reigning in power even now and at the end of all things. He will be victorious against and over all enemies who oppose Him. And those who are following Him and faithful to Him will be victorious along with Him. Now, Psalm 110, it's short, but it's packed full. There's some dense things in this psalm, and we're going to have to do a little bit more rigorous Bible study than than we usually do on a Sunday morning in order to get at this. Um, So stick with me, pay attention, have that cup of coffee, and after we do that unpacking, then we'll come back to what is the main thrust of this psalm? What does it say about the victory of Jesus? And then what does that mean for us today? Psalm 110 is a royal psalm. That means it's about the king of Israel. That makes it a messianic psalm. When David wrote this, Messiah Messiah simply meant anointed one, and it was a way to refer to the current and reigning king. That's David. He's God's anointed one. It didn't have with it at the time the same expansive expectations that in later years it would come to have about a kingdom greater than any kingdom we've yet seen, or a king and Messiah who is greater than we have yet seen. Those expectations would come later, fueled in part by scriptures like Psalm 110 or Psalm 2 and the other royal psalms that depict this kingdom that is greater and more expansive than any Israel had yet seen. But like the other royal psalms, it's typical in that it Uh, It paints a picture of God's favor resting upon and protecting and giving His blessing to the King who rules in Zion, the son of David, those kings who come of the line of David, bearing out and living into the promises that God had made David about having an everlasting kingdom and a son who would reign forever. But there's something unusual about Psalm 110. Embedded in it are two pretty fantastic little surprises that serve to point us to and and elucidate and elaborate even further this Messiah who is utterly unparalleled, unlike any who who had come before and any who would come after. The Messiah that this psalm points to and speaks of has a greatness surpassing even David. Because of these two two pretty fantastic surprises hidden here in Psalm 110, because of them, Psalm 110, interestingly enough, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, I think it's even the most quoted Scripture in the entire New Testament. Six times it's directly quoted, and about as many it's at least alluded to. So what is so special about this psalm? Well, we'll see. We'll get to those two surprises. Don't worry, I won't keep calling them the two surprises. I'll tell you what they are in just a moment. But Jesus himself, quoting from verse 1, he said that David wrote these, and these are Jesus' words, in the Spirit, meaning David is prophesying in the Spirit. He's seeing something that would not come to in his mind for any natural reason. He's been given a revelation, an insight, and now he's writing about it And Jesus is saying, that's what happened when David is writing this psalm. He's in the Spirit, carried along by the spirit of prophecy. As Peter later says, prophecy, those who prophesy are carried along by the Spirit, not even themselves always fully knowing what it is that they're writing about and what it is they're pointing to, such it was with David, according to Jesus' own words. The second surprise that we'll get to, uh, Jesus doesn't speak to it, but as we look at it, we'll also see the Spirit of prophecy is on this surprise as well. Because again, it feels like it's coming out of left field. Like, where did that come from? 
That would not naturally enter the mind of David to put that in his psalm. Instead, it's the Holy Spirit speaking prophetically because he wants to do something and he wants to say something. Both of these surprises are pointing to a Messiah who will be utterly unparalleled, unlike any Messiah that the world has yet seen, that Israel has yet known. All right, surprise number one in verse number one. So take a look there. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Before we go any further, we have to clarify. You see in that verse, the Lord appears twice, but the first time it's all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And the second time, a few words later, it's just capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Well, what's that all about? It's actually really important. Anytime you see all caps, Lord, in the Old Testament, it's signifying that that is the divine name, the special name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh, when he said, I am who I am. In other words, I am like existence itself the one who was and who is and who is to come. That's the divine name, Yahweh. Anytime in the Old Testament you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, it's signifying Yahweh. The name that was so sacred that the Hebrew people would not pronounce it, and the scribes and the copyists who would copy Scripture would wash their hands before and after writing the divine name. All right, the next one, Lord, capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d, appears over 700 times in the Old Testament, and about half the time it refers to God in a more kind of generic title, Lord God. But the other half of the time it refers to a human figure, a ruler, a king, a noble, master. It can have that meaning. So here in this psalm, we have Yahweh is one Lord, and we have this human king, this ruler, this Messiah of Israel is the other Lord. One all caps, one is just L capital. All right, so clear that up, and hopefully that's helpful because anytime you're reading the Old Testament, you'll see that. Now, what does Jesus do when he's quoting this verse? Why is he quoting this verse? Well, he's in conversation with an audience, and they're wanting to know, who are you? And he's wanting them to know who he is as well. So he says, whose son is the Messiah, the Christ? Is he really just the son of David? And then he quotes the psalm, and he says, if that were the case, why does David himself, who's speaking prophetically in the Spirit, why does David not call him my son, as we would expect? We would expect, Yahweh said unto my son, sit at my right hand. Because everywhere else in the Psalter, where, where David or anybody else is referring to the sons of David, the kings that would come after him, they would say, the son of David. So Jesus is saying, why didn't he do that? What does he say instead? He says, Yahweh said unto my Lord. Jesus is pointing out, David says, my Lord, and not son, to indicate that this coming Messiah would be greater than even David himself. And that in the Spirit, David was recognizing this. He was seeing it which is pretty amazing because David was the model king. You couldn't get any better than David. If you were as good as David, that would be as good as it gets. And yet David himself, in the Spirit, is seeing there's one who is coming who will be greater than even me. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am he. I am this Messiah that David was prophesying about that not only was a descendant of David, he was, 
But at the same time, more than that, he was also David's pre-existing Lord. That's surprise number one. Surprise number two, look in verse four. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not recant, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. It would have been enough for him to say, the Lord has sworn. He's made a promise, deal is sealed, he's going to keep that promise. But for emphasis, he says, he has sworn, he will not recant. And what's the promise? You, now the psalmist is still addressing the the Messiah, the human king of Israel. You, Messiah, are also a priest. And not only are you a priest, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Order as in monks and nuns have different orders, and you, you choose one and you join it, or Harry Potter and the order of the phoenix, that kind of order. He's saying a king will come who is also a priest, and he will not be in the order of the Levitical priests, in the order of Levi, which according to the law of Moses, that's where all the priests came from. They came from the tribe of Levi. Instead, he will be in the order of Melchizedek. But this idea of a a king who is also a priest, that is unheard of in Israel. That's truly new. No priest had ever tried to be a king, and only two kings had tried to do things that only priests get to do, and it did not go well for them. Saul, the very first king, offered sacrifices that only the priest was supposed to offer, and he lost the kingdom because of it. God said, I take the kingdom from you, and I give it to one who has my own heart. The other king was Uzziah, who overall was a really good king, one of the best. But at the end of his life, he got proud, and he went to the place in the temple that only the priests were supposed to go and offered incense, and he was struck with leprosy. So priests and kings... They're meant to stay in their separate branches of the government, so to speak. But now here, by the Spirit of God, David is prophesying, and he's saying, the Messiah that is to come will be both priest and king. Unheard of in Israel. And in fact, the only example in the Bible of a priest and a king is this fella, Melchizedek, which further serves to make the point because Melchizedek did not come from Abraham. He was outside of Abraham. He was greater than Abraham. Okay, who's Melchizedek? You're right to wonder, who is this guy? Because he shows up in the book of Genesis, and there are four verses about him. That's it. He meets Abraham when Abraham's coming back from victory in battle. Melchizedek shows up, and he offers bread and wine, and we say, hmm, that's interesting. Seems familiar. Then Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything he owns. And then Melchizedek vanishes, and we never see him or hear from him again for the rest of the Old Testament until this one little verse in Psalm 110. Who is this guy, and what's going on? It's pretty enigmatic. What is the Spirit of God up to by moving David to prophesy and say, you, Messiah, will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, he's there in Genesis, Melchizedek, comes back for this one verse, and then the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament picks this up, puts it all together, and makes a sustained argument for basically three chapters off of this one verse in the psalm. So one verse can change everything. Holy cow. 
And what he's doing is he's saying from Genesis, in the story of Genesis, Melchizedek shows up and he has no genealogy, no father or mother. We don't know where he comes from. There's no death story about Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews also in the spirit is saying he is a figure of one who is ancient and ageless, having no genealogy and no death, priest forever. He also looks at the story and the writer of Hebrews says Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Well, the greater one always blesses the lesser one. So Melchizedek is greater. Also, Abraham honors him by giving him the tenth of all he owns. Melchizedek is greater. And what he's saying by putting these together and adding now Psalm 110, the writer of Hebrews says, look at Psalm 110, priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, meaning he will not be a priest in the order of Levi, because no kings ever would be. Instead, he will be in the order of Melchizedek, who is this figure of Christ, and some in the early church would say, actually, that was the pre-incarnate Christ showing up, blessing Abraham. That's why we can say Melchizedek was greater than even Abraham. Okay, that's a little bit of who Melchizedek is. What's his significance? Well, again, this verse, this single verse here in Psalm 110, and what the Spirit of God does through the writer of Hebrews, opens up the way for a priest who was not a Levite, and that's significant because if Jesus is going to be a priest, the writer of Hebrews has to show how his priesthood is valid, how it's legitimate. And according to the law of Moses, priests only came from Levi, kings only came from Judah. And one man could not be from two different tribes. So the writer of Hebrews is solving this and he's saying, because there's a different kind of priesthood. One that comes before the Levitical priesthood is outside of it and is even eternal, as David said in Psalm 110. So there is a different kind of priesthood, and Jesus fulfills, embodies, he has the role of this eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And it's by his eternal priesthood that we are saved. It's through this priesthood that comes the sacrifice for all time that alone can take away the sin of the world and also give to us the eternal priest, the priest who lives forever, therefore to make intercession for us, the writer of Hebrews says. He'll never die. He always is alive to stand on our behalf before God and to plead for, for us. Whew, okay, all right. That was some rigorous Bible study. Helps to unpack that so that now we can actually come back to the main thrust of this psalm, which actually is pretty simple. The main thrust of this psalm is simply this. God's Messiah is victorious in battle. He is now and He will be at the end of time because Yahweh is backing Him and also the Messiah's people are with Him. Therefore, He will join the battle and be victorious. So let's take again a look now the first three verses speak about this exaltation and the victorious Messiah in the here and now. The last three verses, five through seven, speak about a future exaltation at the end of all things that will be complete, totally and utterly final. So verse one again, the Lord Yahweh said unto my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand in the place of power until I make your enemies your footstool. We read that and we say this is Christ ascended at the right hand of the Father. 
Paul says in, in Corinthians that he is even now, while he is reigning in power, is yet at work in the world, bringing all things into subjection under his feet, making his enemies his footstool. He's quoting this verse. Verse 2, the Lord shall send the scepter of your power out of Zion. In other words, your powerful rule will go out from Zion. It will extend and expand until it covers all the earth. So rule in the midst of your enemies. In the day of your power, the people in holy raiment shall offer you free will offerings. And the sense of this verse is that the people are actually offering themselves. Freely we offer ourselves to your service. You are our Messiah. We'll follow you wherever you go. We're with you. We know you'll be victorious. We offer ourselves and we join the battle with you. Verse 4, which we already touched on. And now verse 5, 6, and 7. Now David changes who he's addressing. He had been talking to the Messiah. You will reign. He's actually sharing this is what Yahweh says to the Messiah. Now he switches it up. And in verse 5, David is addressing Yahweh. And he's saying to you, Yahweh, the Lord, the Messiah who's at your right hand. Here's what he's going to do. Here's what this Messiah will do. Messiah at your right hand will smite kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge the nations. He shall fill the lands with dead bodies and strike down heads over many countries. He shall drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. So again, pointing to a future battle and a future victory. In verse 6, where it says, he will strike down heads over many countries, a lot of the commentators that I was reading were making a really strong argument that heads should actually be singular. He will strike down the head over many countries. In other words, the leader of this opposition, the single figure who's responsible for all those other kings and leaders who rise up in opposition to the rule of God, those who come from the kingdom of darkness, they have this focal point in this single head who will be crushed. And we are meant to think back to Genesis 3, where God promises Adam and Eve, a son, an offspring will come from you, and he will crush the head of the serpent. This is a prophecy about the end of all things. And the final battle, when Jesus, our Messiah, returns to bring into subjection all who oppose him, even the great kings of the earth. And finally, verse 7 is a picture of relief and refreshment, the sign that battle is over. Victory is won. Now Messiah and his people can rest he will drink from the brook by the way and lift up his head. So the thrust of this psalm is that the Messiah of Israel, God's anointed one, who we know to be Jesus of Nazareth, he is victorious in battle. He's fighting even now, putting his enemies under his feet, and he will at the end of time return to the earth and bring into complete subjection all who oppose him. And those who follow him, those who freely offer themselves to his service, will reign with him in glory in a new kingdom. So what does that mean for us? What's the significance for us in our lives? What shall we do in response to this eternal truth that has come through the prophecy of David and the interpretation of the New Testament? What shall we do? I'd like to put before you two things. We must practice hope. And secondly, we must pursue holiness. So first, practice hope. 
We must do away with the it's just a drill mentality. We must begin to live as we ought in the hope and the assurance, the certainty that these things are going to happen. And therefore, I can live my entire life and every day of my life in anticipation of knowing that this final victory is coming and making sure that I stay on the right side. But also knowing that if I do, whatever trials and tribulations come my way, ultimate victory is awaiting me if I stick close to my Messiah. So we practice hope. And far from making this a pie-in-the-sky escapist mentality, it actually roots us in our everyday life and allows us, hope allows us, to do things that we would not be able to do if we were shackled by despair or pushed down by the things that keep us so turned in on ourselves and all of the troubles that we face. Hope breaks us out of that. But it must be a hope that comes from outside of this world. I got to see this excitement at work firsthand many years ago when I was a counselor. I was in high school and working at a camp in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And it was my charge that week to oversee a cabin of second and third grade boys. And in that cabin of boys, there was a young man named Michael. I liked Michael a lot. He was more mature than the rest. He also knew karate. And he came to me at several points during the week, and he said, you know, Mr. Brett, if the other guys get a little bit out of line, just let me know. I can do my karate moves on them. And at several points during the week, I was tempted to take him up on the offer because these boys were rambunctious, as you can guess. Every day when it would become a cabin devotional time, I'd, I'd have my plan, I'd open my book, we'd be, they wouldn't be paying attention. They're bouncing off the walls, right? So all week long, also, Michael is telling me about this lizard that he's going to get when he gets home from camp. He says, this is going to be this big, and the cage has to be that big, and here's all the things that you do to the cage to make the lizard happy. Here's what you feed it. And he went on and on about this lizard. He was so excited about the lizard. Well, comes now to the last day of camp, and we're doing our, our devotional time, and the boys are bouncing off the wall as usual. So after five minutes, I close it up, and I say, okay, any questions? And I meant about what we just talked about, which none of them were paying attention to. And instead, they said, oh, well, maybe we can ask any question about God or the Bible. And they start asking me questions about the end of all things. They really wanted to know, what's going to happen at the end of the world? And so I start telling them what the Bible says about what Jesus will return to this earth. There will be a final battle. He will battle Satan, and, and he will be victorious. He will utterly crush Satan. And I, I read from them that verse from Revelation where it says, the angel will come out of heaven with a chain, and he'll wrap up that ancient serpent the Satan, the devil, who has been de deceiving God's people from the beginning, he will throw him into the bottomless pit. And after he gets out of there, Jesus will come back, and by the strength of the sword of his mouth, the Word of God, he will defeat Satan and all of his forces utterly and completely. And as I'm telling them this, their eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And now they're jumping up and down, not because they're distracted, but because they're on fire about the end of the world and Jesus' victory over Satan. They were so excited. Several of them gave their lives to Jesus in that moment. And Michael, as we're finishing up there and, and we're walking to, to lunch, he turns to me and he says, Mr. Brett, and I can tell that he's weighing his words as they come out of his mouth. He, he wants to be sure that what he's saying is true. He said, Mr. Brett, I think I'm even more excited about Jesus coming back than I am about the lizard. <laughs> I said, Michael, that's amazing. That is awesome. 
that kind of excitement. When they're sitting here saying, is this really going to happen? Jesus is really going to come back? This battle's really going to happen? And I'm sitting there saying, it's really going to happen. Do you know it's really going to happen someday? There's a day in our history, the history that we're in right now, there is a day that is coming, and we'll all be there. We'll see it, and Jesus will return, and everything will be as we had hoped and believed and have been taught that it would be on that day. You live in hope of that. It changes Monday. It changes Tuesday. It changes Thursday, Wednesday too. It changes how you live the rest of your life. All right, so one, we practice hope. Two, we pursue holiness. Look again at verse three. On the day of your power, the people in holy raiment shall offer you free will offerings. They'll offer themselves. They say, you are our Messiah. We're here to follow you. And we're clothed in holiness. That can be translated in the beauty of holiness, in the beauty of a life pursuing what is right and good and holy and of God. Don't let anybody tell you that you're a hypocrite or a religious hypocrite because you are pursuing holiness. You're pursuing the things of God. And those who clothe themselves, as it were, with holiness itself, not these material clothes, but we clothe ourselves with holiness itself. We are those who will follow Messiah into battle and be victorious. What does it mean to clothe ourselves in holiness? Well, it, it means a lot of different things, and it can look a lot of different ways. What I want to do, just for the sake of simplicity, and because this is a great time of year to do this, is I want to give you one thing that you can do to pursue holiness in the next two to three weeks that will actually impact the year to come. Here, here's what it is. In the next two to three weeks, I want you to plan a time where you have two, maybe three hours to go have a, a mini prayer retreat. You can come here to the prayer chapel. You can go somewhere where you can be alone, hear from God, and be with your thoughts. And here's what I want you to do on that prayer retreat. I want you to take a look at the year behind you at the daily rhythms and the weekly rhythms of your life. And I want you to notice what was good in that. What in those daily and weekly rhythms drew me closer to God and put me on a path towards holiness? And either do that again or, or modify it in a way that seems to make sense as you look to the year ahead. But you're also looking for what are those things that actually led more to a mindset of this is just a drill or I want to coast right now. I want to let up on my spiritual intensity. What were those things that maybe on the surface they were okay, they weren't overtly sinful, but those patterns, those behaviors, those routines that you had that were either not healthy for your soul or they just didn't lead you into holiness. And I want you to have the courage to say, I'm going to cut those out. If you had a regimen every day of checking your social media feed or watching your TV show, but your regimen did not include time in the Word of God or time praying for yourself and those for whom you are responsible, that's something that needs to change. But here's the good news. It can. It can. You can change that. So look back on the year behind you. Look at the daily and the weekly rhythms and say, what was good needs to stay the same. What needs to change? And then looking ahead to the year to come, make your plan. And do your best to follow it. It won't be perfect, but do your best. If you are a f leading a family, if you're a mother or a father and you're leading a family, do this for your family. Go away and say, how was last year for my family? Here's the things we need to change. What's the year going to look like? What are the daily rhythms and the weekly rhythms that are going to draw us near to God? Does it matter? Does our level of alertness or awareness matter? It absolutely does. 
I can tell you, I know the difference. I can feel it. I can see it in my life. I can see it in my family when I am not regularly praying with my family and not regularly praying for them. I can see the difference. And I can see the difference when I change and say, okay, it's time to get engaged. Gather us again. Hold us to the plans that we've set. And I'm praying with my family. I'm praying for them. I see the difference. It makes a difference. So for your own self, for those that you are responsible for, in the next two to three weeks, set aside time. Do some reflecting. Make some plans in the daily and weekly rhythms so that you may pursue holiness. And may God give us grace now to live in the hope of his victory as we follow our Messiah into battle. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.